Is the world becoming less religious? Well, according to recent Pew Research findings, the world is becoming more religious. That is, that those who affiliate with the religious traditions such as Christianity or Islam or Hinduism, those who affiliate with them, that is actually increasing throughout the world. And those numbers are expected to grow more and more and more until 2050. In the U.S., that's a different story. According to the same research, the religious landscape in the U.S. is in decline. However, according to research done by National Geographic, those who affiliate as religiously unaffiliated, also called the nuns, has grown significantly, making, it, making up a quarter of the U.S. population. And so what's being recognized is though someone may not affiliate with a particular religious tradition, that doesn't mean that they're any less religious. As the authors of the book, The 20-Something Soul, have pointed out, those 20-somethings who claim to be unaffiliated are actually quite spiritually eclectic. Whether their religion is the worship of self through expressive individualism that says, you do you, or the moral therapeutic deism motto of God just wants me to be happy and to live a good and moral life. Contrary to popular opinion and belief, America isn't seeing a decline in religiosity among younger generations. It's actually growing. It just looks different. Which brings up the biblical question for us today. What even is true religion? What even is true religion? In our passage this morning, Paul is going to be addressing that same question. So if you would, turn with me to, to Colossians chapter 2. Last week, we began our series in the book of Colossians. And in that first major introduction section, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 5, Paul showed how Christ's supremacy is the foundation of our gratitude toward God for our salvation. He showed how Christ's supremacy actually serves as the fuel of our ministry for the sake of one another's maturity. And we learn that because Christ is supreme over all things, spiritual maturity comes by filling one another up with Christ, even as we struggle and as we suffer to do so. Our spiritual maturity, this is really kind of the theme of the book, as I noted last week, our spiritual maturity rests on Christ's supremacy. And part of the struggle for maturity in Christ comes whenever we face self-appointed spiritual referees who try to deceive and to distract us from spiritual fullness in life in Christ. And so Paul, being the good spiritual doctor that he is, is giving this young church in Colossae a spiritual checkup. And as we saw last week, they're actually doing really well spiritually, which is why Paul was so grateful for them, as you remember in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Yet as he's hearing about their life together from Epaphras, he notices some underlying symptoms that if they're not addressed, could lead to problems down the road. And so, as we'll see in our sermon passage this morning, Paul begins to diagnose some of these symptoms and to give them the vaccine 
that will prevent them from the sickness of false religion. So what are some of these symptoms? Do we see these within the church today? And when we do, how do we respond to them? Those are just some of the questions that we're going to be thinking about this morning in Colossians 2. So let's read Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, And not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I think the main idea of of the passage this morning is this. Spiritual maturity means walking in Christ By resisting your captors and remembering your conqueror. Spiritual maturity means walking in Christ by resisting your captors and remembering your conqueror. So point number one, resist your captors. We're going to look at verses 8 and 16 through 23. Resist your captors. Paul begins in verses 6 and 7 with what are known as the theme verses of the book. 
They really serve as the hinge on which the book swings from the introduction section to the body of this letter. In verses 6 and 7, we, see, we have our first command, which serves as the header to the entire section of the body, going all the way through chapter 3. And so, everything through chapter 3 is really a fleshing out of verse 6. And in verse 6, Paul commands this church to walk in him, to walk in Christ, just as they received him. When these Christians received Christ through repentance and faith, they received all that was taught about Christ. All of it. As we learned last week, they received all that was taught about him. They received him as the image of the invisible God, the one in whom the full deity dwells bodily, the one who is the Lord of creation and the Lord of redemption, that through him we have forgiveness of sin in reconciliation with the Father and the call to live a life pleasing to him. This is the gospel message in all that comes with it. They didn't receive part of it, they received all of it. If these believers are going to live a spiritually fruitful and mature life and receive the hope of glory, then they must continue to walk in the one whom they have received. This is the key to true spiritual maturity, and the rest of the letter fleshes that very thing out. However, there were detractors and distractors, which is one of the main reasons for Paul writing this letter, as he says in chapter 2, verse 4, when he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And so for Paul, part of spiritual maturity and walking in Christ means resisting those who try to capture you with empty and false philosophy. Recently, my wife and I purchased a necklace for my daughter. And this necklace had all kinds of cool colors to it, rainbow colors. And in the middle, it had a heart on it. It was beautiful. However, in order for it to be truly glorious, you had to buy extra charms for it at an additional cost. Go figure, way of making money. And so her necklace wasn't great as is. Instead, what did she need? She needed a mermaid charm. She needed a unicorn charm. She needed the first initial of her name on this necklace in order to make it complete. She needed to add all of it for it to be complete. Well, in a similar way, this is what the false teachers in Colossae were doing. No, they weren't adding charms on a necklace, but they were adding to Christ. They were saying that Christ wasn't enough for spiritual fullness in life. Instead, you need to add on to Christ to be truly spiritual. You need to do this and not that in order to be complete in him. And we see this with the three warnings about false teaching that Paul gives in our passage, the first of which comes in verse 8. Look with me there. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Paul calls this teaching empty and deceptive philosophy. Philosophy literally just means the love of wisdom. 
Paul isn't condemning philosophy as a discipline that studies how to think and why to think in a certain way. In fact, thinking about how and why people think the way they think can actually be extremely helpful and effective at proclaiming the gospel to others and thinking well theologically. We're doing that right now in the ABF class on apologetics, right? You're going to go through some philosophical uh, thoughts and having to learn how to think and why to think and how that informs our theology. Philosophy isn't bad when submitted to God's word as its final authority. That's not what he's getting at. So no worries to you in here who is getting a PhD in philosophy. No need to change your major. Rather, Paul describes the philosophy of these false teachers as deceptive as opposed to the word of truth. Did you notice in chapter 1, verse 15? It's empty and only has the appearance of wisdom, as Paul says, as opposed to the, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge being found in Christ in chapter 2, verse 3. And look at what it's derived from. It's human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world. This philosophy, it doesn't come by divine revelation, but from man. Paul will say in verse 23 that it's self-made or man-made religion. And it's influenced by the elemental spirits of the world, which is speaking about spiritual forces of evil that are active in influencing and capturing those of this world through deceptive philosophy that demotes Christ. It's false simply because it's not according to Christ. And so Paul is saying, watch out. Watch out. Like, if, like lest you be like a cargo on a ship getting looted by pirates. Watch out. Well, not only is it man-made and demonic, it's also legalistic. This is why Paul warns them in verse 16 with this second warning. To not let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These false teachers, they were condemning them by measuring one's spiritual worth according to religious practices that God did not require. They're legalists. They were promoting a do-it-yourself kind of religion. And they did this by imposing food laws and Old Testament ceremonial laws, which were ultimately fulfilled in Christ, as Paul says in verse 17. Those things, all that Old Testament, those things were a shadow that pointed to Jesus as its reality, or the word substance right there in your text. And to relate to God according to these laws and these regulations, it's like ignoring a friend and relating to their shadow, as someone has put it. You go up to a person outside after this, right, and they're thinking, hey, what's going on? And you totally ignore them, and you start trying to shake their shadow's hand, and you try to give their shadow a hug. And it sounds ridiculous, and it may, you may even think how ridiculous I am for trying to act that out. And the point, the point of it is that it's crazy. That's crazy to keep going back to the shadowy things that were ultimately pointing forward to its fulfillment in Christ. That's crazy. Don't do that. 
It's crazy and it's pointless to try to keep what Christ fulfilled. In essence, Paul was saying, you don't need them because you've got him. That's what he's saying. And so don't let them judge you by what's already being, what has already been fulfilled. Paul is warning the Christians in Colossae about those who tie one's spiritual worth to their own physical work. True spirituality, it isn't found in rule-keeping, but in relationship with Jesus. His final warning comes in verse 18, to not let anyone disqualify you. Now, the idea of disqualifying someone has in mind a person acting as a spiritual referee, which I mentioned to go. A spiritual referee who tries to declare that you're not worthy or you don't measure up to their form of true spirituality if you haven't done a certain set of practices. And their system of religion also mixed a mix, is also a mix of mysticism and asceticism along with that legalism. I'll explain. It was mystical in that you needed to have this subjective, supernatural experience for true spirituality. And this came through the worship of angels, which were invoked to protect them from evil. It also included visions that were triggered by their self-denial, their extreme self-denial and severity of body. As seen in verse 21, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. That's a form of asceticism. Extreme self-denial to earn righteousness before God. In all of this, it served to stroke their egos, leaving them puffed up without reason, as Paul says in verse 18. They believed themselves to be a part of the spiritually elite, holier-than-thou club, where only those who've done these things are qualified to stand in God's presence. And though they checked all the spiritual boxes to their religious system, they weren't holding fast to the head. Christ is the ultimate source of our vitality and our maturity as Christians, as Paul says in verse 19. They had lost their connection to him and are withering because spiritual growth only comes in being united to Christ. As Jesus himself says in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. And so, as one pastor put it, by fastening their grip on other things, they were at the same time loosening their grip on Jesus. It's for this reason that Paul raises the question to these brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, as if you were still alive in the world, why do you submit to regulations according to human precepts and teachings? After all, these things are destined, as he says, to perish, and they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Man-made rules are ineffective at curbing the flesh. Only union with Christ sets us free from being slaves to sin. 
The promises of true spiritual fulfillment in life from these false teachers were self-made. They were empty, they were ineffective, and they were false. And though we might not know all the particulars of this false teaching, my word, you can go for days and days and all the books and the commentaries going on and on about what in the world this false teaching entailed and what it was. Ain't nobody know. Nobody knows. But though we don't know all the particulars of it, it doesn't mean that we haven't seen this kind of add-on Christianity before. We've seen it before. In the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, Satan comes to Eve, Eve, adding to God's word, saying, did God actually say, you shall not, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? When in fact, God commanded Adam and Eve to eat of any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve then adds to God's word in response to the serpent when she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. We've seen this in Jesus' day with the Pharisees when he condemns them in Matthew 15, who for the sake of their human tradition make void the very word of God. They teach doctrines and commandments of men as if they were the word of God, revealing that though God may have their lips, their hearts are actually far from them. And we see this within the church today through our own legalistic hearts. We see this within the church. Now understand, just real quickly, legalism is not obedience to Christ. It's not obedience to Christ. We obey Jesus out of love for Jesus. Legalism is not putting a filter on your computer or your TV to keep you from temptation. That would just be wise to do that. It's not rules such as asking everyone in here to wear a mask or to social distance, as badly as you might want to say it is. It's not having a political conviction or a scriptural conviction on something though those can morph into legalism. However, legalism is seeking to earn God's favor by doing this or that. As it's been put, it's seeking to leverage Christ's favor with our behavior. As Pastor Eric Raymond put it, it's a relentless taskmaster that promotes your personal performance as your personal, as your continuing personal atonement. It's to take an unbiblical standard and to make it binding on others. It's also to prohibit the use of something where God has only actually prohibited that something's abuse. Classic example would be that of alcohol. Legalism is ultimately the act of seeking to earn favor with God by addition. It adds to what God has not prescribed, and in doing so, it subtracts or demotes Christ from his rightful place of supremacy over all things. It's to say that Christ's work is not enough. But think about where you might see this in your own life. Think about where we might see this within our own hearts. Consider the topic of kids in schooling, whether homeschooling or private schooling or public schooling, whatever kind of schooling you want to come up with. 
Is there ever a time, though, within the deep recesses of your heart, you may not state it out loud, you probably would never state it out loud, but is there a time in the deep recesses of your heart where you think of another family's position on the matter as not being as favorable to God, though you may hold a strong conviction? Deep down, have you thought to yourself that God looks a little more favorably on your position? When ultimately God hasn't spoken definitively on this topic, saying we must do this and not that. What about politics? When we hear from someone that disagrees with our position on mask wearing or even racial injustice, two hot topics right now. When we hear from someone that disagrees with our position on those things, do we immediately begin to look at them as inferior before God because they don't hold to our position? Or they need to get in line with our position, and they're wrong if they don't. Do we ever elevate third-tier issues and make them first-tier issues and make restrictions that are now binding on the consciences of fellow members? where God has not sought to bind those consciences? Do we think our position is the only right position for doing and being a good Christian? And if someone disagrees, do you try to force them to agree with your position because it is the right position and you will pray for them if they don't? (laughs) Do you happen to think deep down of someone else in their position, how can they be a Christian and hold to that? Where do we add too much strength to a topic of too little scriptural clarity? That's the question. Where is that happening within your heart? And so we need to ask ourselves, in what ways does my heart place demands on others that God doesn't demand of them? Where do we act as spiritual referees, blowing the whistle on others in our hearts when no true biblical violation has actually been committed or where there's room for biblical disagreement? All of us, in here, myself included, have the propensity to do this. And so we've got to watch out for this legalistic spirit in our hearts that breeds judgmentalism toward others. This is the kind of thing that Paul spoke against in Romans 14 when addressing the weaker brother to not pass judgment on fellow Christians when God has welcomed them. As well, for the strong brother or sister to not look down on the weaker brother, but to bear with them. Because when we do that, when we pass judgment on one another, we are essentially acting as their masters. And so be careful not to set up demands that Christ hasn't put on others. For us to come up with new debts toward others is to hold them in captivity under our preferences and judgments. Our debt has been paid in full through Christ, who is the Lord of our conscience. He is the authority that makes demands. Paul is guarding us against those who try to supplement Christ with spiritual add-ons. And we ought to guard one another in order to preserve the gospel among us. The religious system of spiritual addition will ultimately enslave you, but Christ is the one who has set us free from captivity to this false and empty religion. And if that isn't true religion, then what is? Point number two, remember your conqueror, 
verses 9 through 15. Well, the false teachers have been providing false solutions to the problem of sin. And so in verses 9 through 15, Paul gives the remedy and the reason for why spiritual fullness isn't found in this false philosophy, but ultimately found in Christ. He says in verse 9 that it's because in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. As we learned last week in chapter 1, verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Jesus is fully God and fully man without sin. You cannot get more of God than you can get with Christ, than you can get with Jesus, as it's been said. And because the fullness of deity dwells bodily in him, he is the supreme head over all rule and authority. And here's the kicker. You have been filled in him. What a fascinating statement. You have been filled in him. The idea of being filled in Christ isn't talking about Jesus physically indwelling you, taking up all the space around your organs. That's not what it's talking about. But rather it's speaking about our spiritual union with him. To put it a different way, because all the fullness of God dwells in Christ and the believer has been filled in him, then the believer doesn't need to supplement Christ for spiritual fullness in life. As the illustration goes, just as the mathematical realm cannot add anything to infinity, so in the spiritual realm, nothing can be added to Christ who is infinite. Contrary to the false teachers, you can't get more spiritual than you already are in Christ. But how are we brought? How are we brought into that fullness? That's what Paul gets at. And he gives two pictures to describe how we're brought into that fullness. The first is that of circumcision. What a fun Sunday. Circumcision. Paul says in verse 11 that in Christ you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In the Old Testament, male infants were circumcised as an outward sign of entrance into the physical people of Israel. However, in the Old Testament, we begin to see signs that this physical circumcision is actually pointing to something greater. And as we read in our scripture reading a moment ago, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, God commanded his people to circumcise the foreskin of their hearts. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, God tells the people that he will circumcise their hearts. Though Israel could be physically circumcised, they weren't circumcised in heart. They needed the hardness of their heart stripped from them. And what's necessary to belong to this redeemed people is ultimately spiritual circumcision. When we come to the New Testament, we see the fulfillment of all of this as Paul makes the connection between spiritual circumcision and baptism. Not baptism and physical circumcision, which is important, but spiritual circumcision and baptism. That is, this spiritual circumcision is made without hands. And it's a believer's baptism. This spiritual circumcision signifies the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, which is speaking about his crucifixion, about his death. His flesh was stripped off through the death 
through his own death on the cross on which the spiritual circumcision of the believer is accomplished. Our own spiritual circumcision, right? Our spiritual circumcision of a new heart is connected now to the new covenant sign of baptism, which is the second picture that Paul gives. Baptism is the outward sign of what God has done within us by his spirit to bring us to saving faith in him. When God unites us to Christ through faith, Jesus' physical death, his physical death, burial, and resurrection counts as our death, burial, and resurrection. That's what union, the doctrine of union with Christ, is speaking about. That since we've been united to him, all that is Christ is now ours, And baptism marks the believer's entry into the church universal and the church local. It doesn't ultimately save us. Christ does. However, only those who've repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus should be baptized. Brothers and sisters, this is why we practice regenerate church membership. This is why we don't baptize infants Only those who've been made alive, as Paul says, and who've been born again, as Jesus says, should be members of God's church. And they enter the church through the act of baptism, which doesn't save you, but rather signifies God's work in you. But what did this achieve for us? What's the point of that? What's the point of all that spiritual circumcision connected to baptism signifying our salvation. What did it achieve for us? Well, notice in verse 13 that Paul says that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection achieved for us forgiveness of sin before God. In verse 14, it achieved the cancellation of the record of our infinite debts we owed God because of our sins. It also achieved the disarming of all spiritual forces of evil in verse 15. And think about that. In the Greco-Roman world, Roman generals would celebrate their victory by parading around the city with all of their captives and their spoils of war in tow. Parading around in their victory over their enemies. And right here, Paul is showing us the paradox of the cross Just as the powers of Jesus' day drug him through Jerusalem, stripped and naked, beaten and mocked with his charges against him, king of the Jews, nailed to the cross, so also God has stripped every power and authority and elemental spirit of this world of its power. And Christ, as the conquering general on his chariot of wood, is riding on in triumphant victory with his captives defeated in his train. To my non-Christian friend, why would you turn to the elemental spirits of this world when you can have spiritual fullness in Christ who defeated them for you? Why would you do that? Friend, turn from your sins and trust in Jesus to cancel your record of debt that you owe God because of your sin. Trust in him who conquered every power and authority. There is no true spiritual life without life in Christ. Turn to him. Because you've been raised with Christ, there is no need for add-on Christianity. 
Christ is enough for you at all times and in all seasons. Brothers and sisters, it's a reminder to us as, the, as believers, where are you looking for fullness? Where are you living like you still owe God for your sins as if Christ's victory over your sin isn't your victory over sin? In what ways are you not seeking spiritual fullness in addition? In what ways are you seeking spiritual fullness in addition to him in whom all the fullness of God dwells? What are you looking to? Because you've been raised with Christ, there is no need to add to him. He is enough always and forever. Maybe right now you're battling a besetting sin. And in despair, you begin to believe the lie that it seems like you're the only one who struggles with that sin. And that if you were truly in Christ, you wouldn't struggle with that sin. Maybe you feel like that right now. Well, friend, remember, you have fullness in Christ. It's not by your own power alone that you battle your sin. Instead, Christ has given you his spirit to empower you, to keep you from indulging your flesh and walking in obedience. He's given you his spirit for you to make war on your sin. You don't do it in your own power. He gives you the power to do what he commands. And so keep walking in him just as you received him until he calls you home. For the single, are you looking for a spouse to provide fullness to your life? Are you looking to something other than Christ? To the elderly, are you looking to your health to provide a moment of fullness rather than ultimately being satisfied in Jesus? For the widow, are you wishing for the presence of your spouse for fullness in your loneliness? To the parent, are you looking to your skills as a parent to define your worth in your life? Friends, there are thousands of competing spectacles, as Tony Renke put it. Put it. There are thousands of competing spectacles that seek to distract us from the only one who can provide true spiritual fullness in life. Brothers and sisters, the point, the point that Paul is getting at is to remember Christ. Remember what he's done for you and who he is for you. He has freed us from captivity to the demands of others into the freedom of serving him. Instead, go to him whose yoke is easy and his burden is light, whose expectations of you aren't laid out in man-made worldly religion, but rather in his word. He has freed us both from the propensity to set up demands on others that God didn't set up and from the propensity to live under demands that we place upon ourselves. Christ has freed you from that. Don't go back into slavery. Don't go back into Egypt. Christ has freed you from it. So the question we must ask ourselves is what would Christ have you to do in that moment? What would he have you to do? And the answer is verse 6. So walk in him just as you received him by resisting your captors and remembering your conqueror in all that he has done for you. Spiritual maturity isn't found in add-on Christianity, but ultimately, it's found in Christ. Let's pray.
Father, we praise you that Christ is enough for us. That no matter what we're dealing with right now, in our current situation, that Christ is enough for us. He is ultimately all we need. And so, Lord, help us to resist those who try to take us captive with empty philosophy and empty religion and help us to rest in remembering who Christ is in what he has done for us. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.